testing. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three. trying to find a way to connect with everyone. Um, Since roughly half of you have not very much experience either sitting or some of the basic notions in Buddhist practice. And some of you I know have a lot of it, a lot of experience and sophistication. Edward? Is it okay to start? Okay. Um, The talk tonight on uh, the Buddha's ancient path of meditation and trying to understand that path as it's being challenged, which it is being, as in this country and in Europe. Uh, And just giving one person's view, my own um, opinion, personal experience, with some of the changes that seem to be coming about quite naturally, not always easily, sometimes quite a bit of pain and struggle and resistance. As the practice becomes more established, as meditation becomes less of a fad and more of a solid activity that goes on in this country. And although I'll be mainly speaking about one meditation tradition, basically Buddhist, and even there, largely what is called the Hinayana or Theravadan Buddhist approach, um, I hope that some of it is a value, I hope that it's practical in terms of your own experience with other traditions or no tradition, just living your life without any particular religious orientation or a religious orientation which is not grounded in a formal tradition. It's not required, you know. I don't feel I should make the mistake of assuming that religion is only official bodies of dogma and practice sanctioned by people who are called religious. The religious mind 
can occur in formal settings, but all too often it doesn't. And the religious mind can occur when it's not even called that, or the person doing it has in the slightest idea that they're being religious. This talk could be subtitled, The Honeymoon is Over. Um, I don't know how familiar you are, but probably you have a sense that from the 60s on, there's been a tremendous interest in things oriental. Uh, many of us going to the Orient in search of something, teachings, teachers, apparently because what we have here is not enough, coming at a time of great opulence and technological triumph, landing on the moon and finding a lot of rocks up there. Maybe it got some people to think. Whatever the motives, there's clearly very strong yearning and a great deal of fervor, many people overcoming many obstacles, changing their lives dramatically, and going to Oriental teachers in this country and in the Orient. For some reason, I say the honeymoon is over in that for many of us, the attitude that we weren't was sort of hat in hand. We are these gross, dull Westerners, and all we know how to do is make money and machines, and we have found that, it's, that comfort is not enough, that some deeper meaning is needed, and you Orientals obviously have it. You have the Himalayas and all kinds of imagery, mystical imagery, and wonderful books that we've been reading. You have it. You have a monopoly on truth, and we're coming and hope that you can straighten us out. I'm afraid that isn't the way it is. Not that there isn't some extraordinary wisdom which resides in the Orient, perhaps been better protected or it's deteriorated less rapidly than in the West, a kind of universal wisdom that is not the property of anyone in particular. This talk really be began some years ago when I personally uh, went to Japan and Korea at the strong suggestion of a Zen master who I was studying with at the time, basically to strengthen my tie and understanding with the, this ancient tradition which goes back 2,500 years and it's still going, in some sense going strong, in other senses faulty. And so I went to Japan and Korea and practiced Zen there in quite a few monasteries, a few in particular, and it backfired. I mean, I got some wonderful training there and met some lovely people, very kind, very generous. But I also learned an obvious fact, something that's obvious to me now but wasn't then, I learned that I wasn't Japanese or Korean. I think at the time many of us were doing impersonations of being Tibetans or Hindus or anything but whatever it was you were brought up as, whether it be clothing or new diet, mainly new fantasies in the mind. And when I started to live there, just on a daily basis, one of the most important things that I saw was that much of what was called Zen Buddhism was cultural. 
that it was not universal at all. It had to do with being a Korean person or Japanese or wherever. The teachers who brought it over, of course, had no choice but to be who they were. And so in presenting Zen to us or insight meditation or various forms of yoga or Sufism, what could they do but be themselves and in the process of teaching something that I feel is universal, transmit their culture to us, which is who they were and what they knew. But we embraced it in many cases without any criticism, and I don't mean now skepticism, but a healthy uh, appraisal of just what is happening. And living over there, I could see that much of what, was, what I was being trained into was simply Korean values or Japanese values as to how to eat or how to relate to women or how to raise a family or everything that a culture does for people. And it became a problem for me. But what came out of it was it forced me to look and find is there something irreducible? Do you get to something that has no, absolutely nothing to do with being Japanese or Korean or a Martian or whatever it is you want to point to? Or in my case, someone from Brooklyn, just bragging a little bit. And there was, and it was exquisitely simple. And it was the ability of each one of us to pay attention to our life as it is being lived with the willingness to learn from that sensitivity. And that has nothing to do with any particular culture. It's formless. Many forms are attached to it based on where the practice takes place. This practice of a human being coming to know themselves by paying attention, not thinking about it, but being aware of thinking. Not being lost in the body, but feeling the body. Hearing sounds. Noticing that smelling is happening, if there's an aroma. In short, becoming very direct and intimate with our life. That's the core of Zen. It's paying attention to your actual life. Not some theory that you might have about it or an idealization how you would like to be or how your favorite movie star or Zen master behaves, but from moment to moment, just seeing how we actually live. Whether you do it in a somewhat stylized position like sitting, as we just did, and I, I hope to cover why that, that can become problematic, that is, the sitting comes to stand for meditation, which it isn't. It's just one modality, a stationary one. And then there are others which are dynamic. In other words, meditation has no particular locus because it's essentially formless. It has nothing to do with whether you eat vegetables or meat, take your shoes off, keep your shoes on, eat tofu or don't eat tofu, shave your head, grow a beard, wear long flowing robes or a jumpsuit. Um, it's independent of all that. That's where its power comes from. In other words, it's an, an empty mirror. So each one of us has this mirror which is the capacity to see how we are actually living, to begin from scratch. And you can start that at any moment. Now, there is an art to learning to do it, and it's been kept alive more in the, in the Orient than here, for sure. So, it was on my mind a lot when I came back, since I became very impatient with doing an impersonation of being Japanese or Korean. Whereas that got boring after a while. And from, that's happening now, I feel, to a lot of us. 
people who are doing that. Perhaps you missed that one and that's fine. Maybe you have another one. Okay, and coming back and then at a certain point some years later, beginning to teach, it was only natural that all of us who came back and who had gotten teachings from Oriental teachers, when we ourselves began to teach, we repeated that process. So we were taught a certain way and in my own case, many of the teachers I worked with was by the book. You know, very, or as the English say, spot on. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it and it's been done for thousands of years in some cases. And of course, we all started that way. Um, Little by little, and there's quite a bit of variation among the Western teachers of meditation, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm representative of uh, the way most people feel, but there's a growing and a strong group of people who, with time, gradually, and in some cases not so gradually, moved away from the ways in which they were taught and began to develop the confidence to take chances and teach what seemed to be right for Westerners. And then there were and are, to this day, Westerners who pretty much or almost exclusively, it's impossible to do it entirely, are transmitting what their teachers gave them. So that's the background. in my own case, it reached a crescendo point a few years ago, and just recently, a final, I don't, it's, I'm sure it's not final, but the most recent version of looking at this process and trying to understand what's the best way to teach it to people who are like myself. Okay, let me try to lay out, as I see it, some of the core issues and problems. And please, when you hear it, don't hear it as a study in history of religion or a travelogue or anything of that sort, but reflect back on your life. What bearing does any of the things that I'm saying have for you? If it's just a talk with no implications for your own life, I don't feel as much value in that. Now, in suggesting that you listen in this way, I'm also continuing the meditation instructions. Because meditation goes on wherever you are. And sitting as we did for... 15 or 20 minutes. That's one invaluable way to carry it out. And another one is talking and listening. Right now, I'm doing most of the talking. You'll have your chance in a little while. Can we listen to each other? I mean, really listen to each other. If we can, then it's meditation in action. Now, to really listen to each other means that in listening to me, you have to also listen to yourself. That is, you have to be attuned, begin to develop the sensitivity to see that your mind wanders away and you hear every third word or you strongly agree with something or you like the speaker or you dislike the speaker or you strongly disagree. And what that does, how it colors all kinds of emotional reactions and I agree and disagree and feel good and feel bad. So to really listen to somebody else, you have to be sensitive to yourself. Notice inattention, particularly seeing how you drift off. Or strong judgments. I'm not asking you to agree or disagree, quite honestly. What I am suggesting is that you listen. And notice when you don't. Then you're learning, and that's meditation. And frankly, it's probably more valuable than any of the content that will get 
transmitted to you tonight because it's the beginning of a way of, how to, of living, which is to bring alertness and sensitivity into all our actions. Okay. I think the core difference and what created the greatest problem, certainly for myself and, and others, was the fact that this teaching was primarily in the hands of monks and nuns, and mainly monks, for thousands of years. That means it has a tremendous monastic coloration. It was basically the property of monks living in monasteries, that is, people who wore robes, who had special diet, who lived in special buildings, often in different places like the mountains. And it is that population which carried out most of the meditation work. And the teachings of the Buddha have been transmitted for 2,500 years and in many cultures. And it seems, for the most part, if not entirely, the main group that kept it alive were monks. There have been people called lay people, of course, who have also become enlightened and have been great teachers in it, etc. But quantitatively speaking, it was mainly controlled by monks and nuns. Now, the societies in the Orient were organized in such a way that that seemed to be what was necessary and appropriate and helpful. So I'm not criticizing uh, monasticism at all. I've spent some time in it. I love it when I do it. Uh, But there is a problem when the people who come to teach in the United States are monks and nuns, mainly monks, and that's important because it has a very masculine coloration. And when the most eager people who want to receive this teaching are not monks or nuns, they're us. That is, there's genuine, I feel, intense spiritual energy in the United States, probably more than anywhere in the world. Oddly enough, the United States is becoming the spiritual capital of the planet. And if there is going to be a spirit, I mean, spirit, of course, has nothing to do with any of this. It's not that it's going to go out of style, or even if there's a nuclear total uh, destruction of the planet, that has nothing to do with the life or death of the spirit, because there's no life or death to the spirit. But in this manifestation, which we call planet Earth, and in a small fragment of it, which we call the United States, and it includes Europe, there's tremendous interest in some of these things. I don't know how many people, but I'm convinced it's not just a fad. And you can see it spreading, moving into the medical medical, um, world now, being called different names, stress reduction, tension release, relaxation a growing emphasis on the role of diet, of understanding one's mind, of spirituality, etc. And it's, along with computers and the fear of nuclear holocaust, it's probably one of the main themes, and it's growing. Okay. So you have the people who have strong interest in meditation being people like ourselves, who go to school, who go to work, who have families, and are not likely to spend 20 or 30 or even one year just living in a monastery. It just doesn't seem to be in the cards for that to happen. And yet, there is genuine spiritual excitement. So you have a problem right from the beginning in that there's a 
uh, a discrepancy between the bearers of the teaching and the recipients. Now, if I could suggest a few important consequences that I feel have come from that. A core value in the monastic way is perhaps a very wise recognition of the power and danger of certain energies in life. Sexual energies, money, food. These are the things that generally destroy us. Very few people know how to handle money or sex or food. Very few. I mean, people who have a lot of it or who don't have any of it, of all of these things, it's a problem. It's a rare person who knows how to use any of these energies correctly so that they're not destroyed by it. Okay, so this is a harsh reality that the human race has been with, it's been with us for a long time. The monastic decision seems to me to be a very realistic recognition that these energies are so powerful that most of us get lost in them. And that is, if you want to come to God, if you want to come to enlightenment, or whatever language appeals to you, to freedom, liberation, you better either stay away from those energies or put a fence around them, curtail them, and limit your contact with it. Which leads to celibacy, which may lead to one meal a day, which may lead to not handling money. Now, many of my teachers, all three of those, were how they have been since they were teenagers. They've never had to earn a living. They've never been with a woman. And food has been given to them through begging. And usually, one meal or two meals a day, no eating afternoon, just liquids allowed. This has been going on for thousands of years. Now, someone who comes over and those particular commitments are part of their bloodstream by now, because they've been doing it so long, and starts to teach people who are in a very different place, uh, just take one aspect of it. Men and women, at, this, at the same point that this teaching is coming over, uh, in the United States in particular, all kinds of new things are going on. Experiments between men and women, an attempt by a growing number of men and women to learn how to live honestly with each other, the whole women's liberation movement, a radical transformation in the way people are with each other, homosexually, heterosexually, changes in the family, and teachers come who come from traditional backgrounds where none of this is happening there. Men and women, many men and women, don't know what intimate talk is about. Women have specified roles, you know, so you all know this very well. Okay, now to get to the strategy, because I see it as a strategy, life is just life. There are no monks or nuns or robes. Or, these are all arrangements. They're made by the mind, agreements, to chop up reality in certain ways, hopefully for a greater end. But life is, is just there. And, you know, and sexual energy is just there, whether you call yourself a monk or a nun, or food is there to be eaten. We all need to eat it, etc. So their choice was, these realms are so charged and so problematic that a religious person who's really sincere has to drop them, has to either not do them and learn ways to do without them or to contain it, sort of ration it out. And there's a whole structure that has evolved to protect that in the Orient. For example, if you take money, the monks and nuns don't have to worry about how they're going to support themselves, by and large. 
because the way it works there is that the monks and nuns meditate primarily and this is particularly in Southeast Asia and the lay people and I don't really like that category at all lay people um, and I think you'll get a sense of why I don't like it in a few moments they pay the bills and they pick up the tab so that the the real spiritual they call the noble ones in the Buddhist literature they can get on with it and the rest of us yo-yos you know we just see to it that all their needs are taken care of which creates a real split now in return and I don't know if this is true or not maybe some of you do if we do that we get merit in the next incarnation I'm not mocking rebirth I'm not saying it's true or it's not true I personally don't know and impressing a lot of oriental teachers I don't know if they know either but it's built into them so of course they speak with great assurance if you grew up in a Marxist home you have enormous confidence about atheism I mean it's just obvious of course there's no such thing as God that's for children if you grew up in India of course there's rebirth how can you even question that now I'm not saying there isn't there's plausible reasons for and against but based on my own experience I haven't died yet so I don't really know and I don't see how I can conclusively so that if the lay people pay for the monks they in return get merit which means they'll get a much better rebirth ideally they'll be reborn as a monk and there are uh, which means that there's a hierarchy there are monks which are men nuns and then lay people there are women and some in the United States women nuns I know some of them who are praying to be reborn as men because this is considered a superior spiritual state now I don't know if that's true or not I mean it's attempting to be open I don't want to have the bias for or against it sounds a little goofy to me in that truth doesn't seem to have any sex I mean the truth is just there available to anyone who's accessible who's, who's uh, open to it but what it says more to me is about cultural arrangements that that particular society has arranged things so that as a matter of fact it probably was true that you had a better chance to evolve spiritually if you're a man because the whole society is organized to help that come about and a woman attains her meaning spiritual meaning by helping her man and some very good qualities can develop from that like humility but you, if you hear what I'm saying there's a caste system or a, a stratified system and it's not that some lay people don't break through and attain enlightenment but that's really more the exception okay so that's so that we protect ourselves the, the monastic solution is to protect ourselves from the temptation of money by not handling it by not having to go out and get it okay similarly with sex with sensuality and this is of course in many religious traditions it's not exclusively in the Orient but it's also not exclusive to all religious traditions there are some that don't do it that way okay so the approach is if we don't if we stay away from these highly charged objects we won't be destroyed from a spiritual point of view and maybe that's a wise strategy 
I'm not doubting that it has worked for countless people in the Orient or in other traditions. All I'm suggesting is it's now come here and the fact is that we don't want to be monks or nuns. Most people in this room, is that true? I mean, I'm assuming it. It's probably true. Okay, now what I'm suggesting is that we need a teaching that's appropriate to who we are. And so we have to take our life situation and come up with a teaching that's appropriate for us, that works for us. Gandhi found himself with a nation, a mass of unarmed people. It's not, it's not only that he had such wonderful, humane notions about life, is that he found himself, in a sense, stuck with a mass of unarmed people, and he turned it around. He used that. I mean, he made the greatest weakness of the Indian people, in terms of the British, his strength. Oh, this is horrible. Here we are, in a sense, imprisoned by these imperialists, and there are not many of them, but they have the guns and the power. And here, here we outnumber them enormously, but we have no weapons. Well, I guess it's just hopeless. But what he did is he turned that around. He said, it's not hopeless. We just have to work with what we have. This is an analogy for us. You see, um, if it's true that meditation is formless, and you know, you're obviously it's not only my opinion, but it's at least my opinion. If it's formless, then the meditative way of life can happen anywhere, by anyone. And that the essential practice is not necessarily crossing yourself a certain way or bowing a certain way or uh, praying at certain hours of the day or not eating at certain times or eating. The religious customs that are endless, as you, as you can imagine. And that's another thing that's different. We in the West, you can go into any uh, large paperback bookstore and just at a glance read about all the major traditions. It's all there. Most of the people who come here to teach grow up in homogeneous cultures. And they've been taught that whatever it is that they've gotten in their culture is the only way. Now we have, and it's, it's some degree it's driving us insane, we have so many choices in terms of food, clothing, religions, anything you want to mention, languages, uh, where, to, where to travel. I mean, we're, we're drowning in choice. Again, there's nothing wrong with having choices, but if we're not clear or we're compensating the choices, you can be destroyed by that as much as you can by sex or excessive food or not knowing what to do with money or not having any of it. Okay, so you can see it's starting to, as I talk, I'm really, this is a, a helpful opportunity for me. I'm trying to gather my thoughts on something that I've been involved with for a while and I've been on retreat for up until just shortly, just a little while ago, and it's now important that I start bringing everything together, and so you're the kind of uh, guinea pigs you have to put up with all this. In a sense, I'm carrying out a dialogue with myself, and I hope that it has some relevance for you. Now, there's another approach, which I certainly didn't make up, but which I opted to emphasize a few years ago. And I certainly learned the beginnings of it when I went to Korea. Because when I went to Korea, I was not a monk. I was a lay person, but I had to agree to live by the code of the monks. I wore robes the whole time, and I, I did everything they did so that I could get the training. But, I was, but in, in my heart, I was not. 
So it was not so easy for me sometimes because I had to, my company was always monks and nuns. There was one whole year that mostly who I hung out with were monks and nuns. And they were lovely people, but they were not too into the movies or other things, you know, you can imagine. Um, so the beginnings of understanding that what they were doing was not relevant for me, all of it, much of it, was not relevant for me. And then in coming back, there is another model, which is also ancient, sometimes called Tantra, Tantra, and it's been in Buddhism and it's been in Hinduism, but it's also been in the West. And it's a very different approach. The first approach, if you recall, has to do with identifying all these highly charged energies and then avoiding them. And a lot of concentration can come from that. No sex, no money, control our meals, live in a special place, very quiet, a very rarefied kind of life. I'm not degrading it because it has tremendous power. I've lived that way. You can get very concentrated that way. And if you never have to set foot out of that round of life, and here's where, now I hope you can begin to see some of the problems, I don't think it's a problem. At least that most of them have not ever acknowledged it as a problem. But if you're not living most of your life in that same monastic environment, but you just go for that training from time to time, and then you step foot out of it into Harvard Square, it's a very different situation. In other words, the dichotomy or the seeming dichotomy is enormous. Okay, so the training uh, that started to become more obviously relevant is one where you don't review, view these objects as necessarily good or bad. Sex is not good or bad, neither is money, neither is food. It's what you do with it. And so the challenge, and I would say the spiritual challenge, is learning how to live with these energies in a creative way so that it's spiritually enhancing. Again, you turn what seems to be an obstacle into an advantage because there's tremendous energy in these realms. And what if that energy could be turned in the right direction? It doesn't mean that we have to be destroyed by it, spiritually speaking. But you have to learn how to do that and it's not small order. Okay, the heart of that seems to be the art of non-attachment. Okay, which again doesn't mean, uh, when often, when, especially I've noticed, when people hear non-attachment, we're so uh, concerned with accumulation, immediately we feel something's being taken away from us. We're going to be deprived. It's an attitude that goes something like this. Can you eat a meal and enjoy it while you're having it? Thoroughly enjoy it. Prepare it. Have it be delicious. And then when the meal is over, period. And also for the eating of the meal to be in, 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 in tune with the laws of nature so that the body is not sacrificed for some craving and produces endless problems, which many of you know, one of which being cancer. So can we learn how to eat? So there's nothing wrong with taking three meals a day or having a wardrobe of clothes or having a lot of money or having a nice place to live or being in a love relationship. The challenge becomes what to do with it. Are you all seeing that? So that, for example, if we could learn what and how to eat and when it's over, it's over. But instead, of course, the problem is that when it's over, it's not over. We have a delicious food and then the mind latches onto it. It wants to repeat it. It wants more of it. And that's where the problem comes in. 
or, for example, with nature. I mean, it's with us all the time. You see a beautiful sunset. There's nothing anti-spiritual about beauty or non-spiritual. You see the beautiful sunset, and maybe at that moment there's a total connection with nature. There's no thinking. It might just be for three seconds. Suddenly the thinking mind shuts down automatically because you're so engrossed with the beauty of nature that the momentum of thought stops. And there's no you in a certain sense. There's just direct contact with the wonder of a sunset. And then what happens within a few seconds, thought jumps in and claims it. It's a beautiful sunset, but the one at Acapulco is a little bit better. Uh, And then the next day you go running back to, to get it again. And that's where the suffering comes in. The suffering is not in the sunset. The suffering in it is in that we want to hold on to it. We want to make things last longer than they last. And we suffer with love. There's nothing wrong with people making love with each other. The problem comes in when, when it's time for change and we can't let go and we suffer enormously here. Can we learn to be very loving and non-possessive? If any of you have tried that, you know how difficult it is and all kinds of pretentiousness and mock freedom and parading around this freedom and down deep there's just enormous possessiveness and hurt. Okay, so I'm not saying it's easy. I am saying it's a realm that's easily as dignified and worthy as... I'll give you some austerities that come out of religious tradition. Uh, Sleeping four hours a night, having one meal a day. Here's a good one in ancient Thailand, or up until really a hundred years ago, the monks would do a form of walking meditation, which we do here at Interface. Some of you I know have done it, and at Barry, Insight Meditation Society, which is a very slow contemplative walking so that you're very concentrated and you're just experiencing the sensations of movement as you walk. Very slow. And it was done on the edge of the jungle. And there would be tigers in the jungle. And it was done intentionally. And if you were afraid, the tigers would pick up on it and you were a meal, potential meal. So the challenge was to do your walking meditation and to have no fear. If you had no fear, you were safe. And that was one austerity that the monks took upon themselves, to be that concentrated, sort of, if a moment of fear came up, attention would be right there with it. And the fear, those of you who have not meditated, you have to take it on faith, the fear begins to dissolve if you can honor it, not try to do anything to it. Or sleeping for only four hours a night, or sleeping sitting up, or having no choice in meals, just going around with begging bowls and taking whatever is offered to you. Or to train, let's say, the ego in in terms of selflessness and discipline and concentration, all qualities which are useful. Okay. Our jungle is different. I mean, are we going to really be doing that walking meditation in front of tigers? It's ridiculous. But we have other austerities, and I'm using austere here, not in a kind of harsh way, but in a sense of a a kind of a flame that burns away stuff that's um, excessive in our life, that's doing us no good. It's not a kind of tight, dried-out thing I'm talking about. It's a more... um, Refinement might be another word for it. Endless refinement. Okay, our austerities are not doing the walking meditation in front of tigers or sleeping for four hours, but can a man learn to admit weakness to a woman? 
to cry in front of a woman. That's not easy. For any of you, you know, I'm sure the men know it. If you've tried it, you know it's not easy, especially if you've been brought up a certain way. For women to learn certain things in regard to men or in regard to the world. Whereas all of many people, and that's of course a, a lot of what Interface is about, is an attempt for us to re-educate ourselves along lines which are more genuinely humane and sane, healthy. That's what holistic health is, is pointing towards. So I feel we have a worthy arena to pr- for our spiritual practice. We don't have to apologize because we want to get six hours sleep or because we only want to see uh, t- lions in the zoo. Okay, so that, and I'm sure you can think of many other things that you've had to do in your life, in the work situation, in relationships. If you genuinely want to learn, you know, to have authentic relationships, and here I'll be spewing out all the cliches of the so-called New Age. You know, they're not necessarily cliches, but they can very easily become that. It's hard work, and it can be integral to a spiritual life the body. Many of the teachers that I had viewed the body as an enemy. Not only did it have sexual energies in it and food, requirements for food, but just in general, this body, you know, it's going to get sick and die and it's going to get old first and then it'll die and something always going wrong with it. And a view of the body, in fact, there are particular meditations where to, the goal is, I think, a good one, to not be attached to the body. You contemplate the foulness of the body. You know, what is this thing that that all these commercials are making such a big fuss over? And, you know, we're going to aerobics to kind of trim it down and massage it and oil it up and all the rest of the things we're doing to it. When it's just, if you look closely, it's a sack of urine and shit and pus and... And there are these contemplations where you move through the body and now... it's done with, let's say, an image. You have an image, if you're a man, of a woman, perhaps, who's beautiful. And then you superimpose that contemplation. Uh, you won't be so aroused. <laughs> Who wants to make love with a sack of pus or urine or feces? And that's a skillful choice. Again, you see the choices to kind of um, take the charge out of, that, out of that object, which is potentially a problem. Now, to have a body is, uh, we all recognize, is essential. Uh, the holistic health approach is rather different and it's to honor the body. Now again, this can go to the other extreme where it's really the same thing as contemplating the foulness of the body and that is becoming just tremendously indulgent about the body. Pouring a funnel full of vitamins endlessly into you, minerals and vitamins and uh, pampering the body to the extreme and a lot of that does go on. So on the one extreme, you have pampering the body. On the other extreme, you have viewing it as, in a sense, almost an enemy. Uh, One teacher that I had, uh, we were working very, very hard and going with very little sleep, and the Westerners were starting to complain a bit. And he rebuked us, and he said, look at your body and just say, you're no good. You know, what's wrong with you? Why can't you keep up? Or just you force it. Okay. This is not an approach that's, first of all, it's not appealing to lay people. The monks and nuns have a whole ascetic kind of thing. Within the confines or the parameters of their life, it can make sense. But if you just take it out of context, it's, it's denatured. 
and you just bring it to lay people who don't have that whole austere way, and I'm not using austere as a negative connotation, it makes no sense. So that we need a, an approach to the body, which a lot of, of the kinds of things going on at Interface, where we begin to learn about the beauty of the body, the value of it. Again, it is dangerous from a spiritual point of view. You can get so lost in bodily beautification, in wanting to live to be 2,000 years old, in having you know, the best body on the beach, you know, the, what you might call um, leotard yoga. Do you know what I mean by leotard? There are many yogas. This is the most recent one. For those of you who understand, you can explain it to that would, of course, undermine any attempt to, to grow beyond those limitations. And spiritual practice, I think all of it, has to do with self-release. Release from that with which we think we are. In a certain sense, it's the death of the person. Now, much of what is going on right now, and I feel much of it is necessary, but at a certain point it will not be necessary, is really self-improvement. Now, self-improvement is, is, and that's, of course, a lot of what the monks and nuns and the monastic approach has been very sensitive to. Self-improvement, taking all these growth techniques, psychotherapy, Feldenkrais, astrology, macrobiotic food, endless numbers of massage, etc., all of which are wonderful and have something valuable to contribute. But a slight twist, and they become an obsession, and they become just making the ego bigger. Okay, now, if you want to do that, in other words, have a lot of self-esteem, a lot of good qualities, assertiveness, and all the rest of it, that's a valid choice for you. But any authentic spiritual path has to grow beyond that. You don't have to go on a spiritual path. There's no law that says you have to. Maybe there is. I, don't, I mean, there's no, you know, in the sense of the law courts. Maybe there's some cosmic law. I personally feel there is. It's not that it's a luxury item, but that there's no real fulfillment possible without honoring a, a concern with the deep significance of why we're here, of what the whole show is about. It isn't just getting a better job and a better body and a better mate and more health and living longer and all the rest of that. Again, which is not to say throw all that out, which is the first choice. So as you can see, we, we're trying to steer through. It's a very tricky uh, sea that we're trying to sail through to stay balanced in the middle of all this. And if it's a little confusing, which includes a reasonable diet, some exercise. If there's a lot of problems in relationship, to look to that. If that calls for psychotherapy, do it. Because until there's a certain reasonable level of satisfaction and health and well-being, I think it's ridiculous to think in terms of renunciation or going beyond ego, transcending ego. Jack Engler, who gave a talk here at Interface last year, has a very beautiful paper, if some of you may want to read it, in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology. It's a very well-documented, precise... He knows both insight meditation, or Vipassana, and psychotherapy well. This paper can be summed up as you've got to become a somebody 
before you become a nobody. Okay, now the spiritual traditions are exalting becoming a nobody. And that's a very tricky one because it can become a very big ego trip too. You know, I'm a nobody, which is a somebody. <clears throat> but I'm talking about a real nobody, which is not a concept. It's just you just live from moment to moment. You carry out living. You're a conscious presence without the need to endlessly locate yourself with some quality. I'm this or I'm a that. And endlessly strive to accumulate this is and that's. Okay, that's the essence of it. All spiritual paths, you can't, you know, you have to travel light. Okay, so it's a balance of using all these wonderful things that are available to us and living in the Boston area. We're very fortunate. You know, there's so much around here that's available. I'm not saying eliminate it at all. I'm saying let's learn how to use it and each person has to make up their own path as they go with help from our friends. For one person it might mean doing a tremendous amount of physical work because the body's been neglected for a long time. Forget about meditation. You know, go on a fast and get, change your diet and do lots of hatha yoga and learn how to breathe. And gradually your interest in meditation will spontaneously come to you. That's what happened to me. I didn't start with meditation. I started with the physical. Someone else is tremendously developed in terms of the physical and they need help some other way. Some people need to read spiritual books, a lot of it. There's a certain kind of sensibility that the mind needs to have before it's ready to go beyond itself. Okay, it's endless. And we have resources now. They're here. And it's just a question of using it. Hey, let me touch on uh, what I consider one of the major problems that has come out of the teachers delivering a monastic kind of teaching and the students not being aspiring monks and nuns. Does everyone, you see that dislocate, potential dislocation. Let me try and make it more vivid with concrete example that I, I know from my own experience. First of all, I'll put out what is, I feel is necessary so you can see my bias. Some of it is already clear. What we need is a practice that embraces all of life where nothing is divorced or separated. In other words, it's a, a, a mode of meditation where there's no spirit sacred and profane. Either it's all sacred or none of it is and the sacredness comes from you. It comes from how you, what you bring to each encounter with a person, to nature. If you walk into a church, even the greatest one, it's not really sacred. It's a, a high-class dramatic stage prop, which can be very useful. It inclines the mind towards certain interests. But when you look at it, it's made out of the same cement as a urinal. It's not any more sacred than the Greyhound bus terminal. It's just something constructed by human beings. It may be more beautiful and there may be a lot of sentimental memories and etc. accumulated from it, but how much real sacred activity is going on inside churches? I don't mean to single Christian, you know, religious institutions, buildings. So that's not really it. So what I'm suggesting, and this is uh, what many of us have come to in our teaching, is right from the beginning, Day one, and if you're new to meditation or you're just thinking about 
possibly meditating, is to try to make it very clear that the essence of meditation is not in any particular posture. It's not this, you know, the Buddha image that you've seen. And you, you know, when you go to a museum, it's only natural that we tend to think that meditation is that because the icons all reinforce that. that the icon of, medi- of, of Buddhism is certainly the Buddha sitting in meditative posture with a serene, wise expression. Beautiful, and that has its place. But if you fixate on that, and if you go to some of these retreat centers which are modeled on the oriental way, that's what they will do because that's what monks and nuns were doing. They didn't really have what we, much of what we would think of as a daily life. Contemplative life was meant that you would sit in contemplation for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And that was not in a big way in contrast with anything else. So what I would emphasize is that meditation is a way of life it's a way of relating to what's happening. And that way has everything to do with sensitivity, alertness, the willingness to learn, paying attention to our life. And when you're sitting, then by all means, do that wholeheartedly. We just did some. But when you get up, if you, when you leave here tonight and walk, if you can begin to bring awareness into, the, into your moving from interface and into your car and driving, that's not more or less sacred than the sitting posture. It's just the next part of your life being expressed. Put another way, wherever you are is your life. I mean, this may sound, well, what is he saying? That's so obvious. But is it? We walk into certain neighborhoods we don't like. Central Square, you know, click that one out and fantasize being uh, in the Bahamas. When you're in Central Square, can you be in Central Square? When you're in someplace beautiful, can you be in someplace beautiful? When you're eating, can you eat? When you make love, can we make love? When we're sitting in meditation, can we sit in meditation? Sitting meditation. If we go away to Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, where you do many, many hours of it, can we do that? Okay, so do you you understand what I'm suggesting? Meditation is formless. It has no locus. There's no particular dress. You don't have to become a Buddhist to eat Levy's rye bread. You can just continue being exactly who you are if you want to be a Buddhist. If that helps you, that whole body of doctrine and inspiration, and all, by all means, it's, it can be wonderful. It can also be a dead end. There are Buddhists drowning in those words who are nowhere near what the Buddha was talking about. And those words have helped some. I'm not endorsing either. To tell you the truth, I'm not. What I'm endorsing is for you to, to live the most significant life you can. And if that includes adopting a formal religion, great. But for many of us, it isn't. I personally am not a Buddhist even though I teach Buddhist meditation. Sounds weird. I'm grateful to what I've learned from the teachings of the Buddha and all of these teachers, even though I'm changing the teaching a bit, and in some cases quite a bit. It's not out of disrespect for them or for what I've gotten from them, but rather out of intelligence, I hope. And it's taken me a long time to get even the beginnings of confidence to be able to say, I don't care what they say, they're wrong. See, now that's another thing, to, as an aside. It's, it's the same thing. Recently, the spiritual Buddhist meditative world was shaken. Tremors, all kinds of problems. It seemed like within a period of a year, an enormous number of Zen teachers and some stuff in, in insight meditation as well, suddenly there were all these exposés of sexual misconduct among great Zen masters. 
Now, what is going on? And I knew some of them, and I, I practiced with a number of them. And they had passed all the requirements, finished all their koans, sat with this one, sat with those, and they were fully anointed, certified. They were certified saints. Sorry to be a little bit that way, but I guess I'm not sorry. <laughs> um, because there was, in some cases, a bit of arrogance and smugness and complacency and condescension towards Westerners. The message being, we have wisdom in our pocket, just do what we tell you and you will get it. And it turns out, which may not surprise you, if you've not been in spiritual circles, you in a certain way have more clarity. Because there's a lot of, you get caught up, every world has its you know, kind of whirlpool of beliefs and sentimental colorations. If you look at it, these were good men. They were all men, <laughs> naturally. One Zen master, and I won't mention any names. I really won't. Uh, certified by one of the great Zen masters in the world, in my opinion. It turned out he had five simultaneous affairs with women um, in his group, students, and also had a wife to boot. And none of them knew it, and then it all surfaced, and it was just bedlam as they all confronted him with crying and pointing fingers. And others along the way, advanced students, etc. How could that happen to these people who have paid their dues and have been certified? In other words, they've passed their boards, their MDs or their law. You know, we know. What guarantee is that? Any social arrangement. In other words, ultimately, only we know when we're not corrupt anymore. And no, in my opinion, no outside agency can give you this final certification. You can believe it and others will all be all too willing to believe it about you. But you know if you're cutting corners or if you're presenting yourself as more than what you are or you're allowing people to think that you're more than what you are. And that's at the essence of spiritual discipline is honesty. I think that what happened, and this is again just an opinion, is that these people were, they're not, they were good people, all of them, and worked very, very hard. And I, for one, learned a lot from each one of these teachers. But in their training in the Orient, there was no, there were no provisions for the relationship between men and women being considered part of spiritual practice. That's off somewhere else. Most of them didn't have very much experience or no experience with women until they got to the United States. And then suddenly, here are women who are available Attractive, available, hi there, Mr. Zen Master. You've passed all your koans and you've sat for three years in the wilderness. And, you know, you have a Zen shout that can break windows. And you give incredible Dharma talks. But how about this one? Just me and you together. And it just, it didn't seem to work. In other words, they lost control, which is, Suggest that wasn't an issue in, in Japan or Korea or some of these other countries. So there was no training in it. The whole culture is totally different. And now you come here, it's not simply that there's availability or that this is a, a, a lay-oriented society where most of the people involved are not monks or nuns. It's that there's a sexual revolution going on. You might say an obsession you know, with it. And so these very innocent people, many of them are incredibly naive and innocent about this realm and did some very stupid things. Okay, it's not to condemn them, it's just that their journey continues. And the better ones among them have acknowledged it, have picked up, you know, they've fallen down, they've gotten up, and they're working on it. And that's where their work is. They have to learn how to relate to a woman. 
and it's in addition to walking in front of tigers or whatever else. Okay. Okay, if I could just, uh, and this will be the final point that I'd really like to hear from you all. Let me give you a, uh, a simplified journey that typically happens to meditation students, enough of them for it to be a pattern, in my experience, and other of my friends who've been teaching have shared their experience with me. Typically, the person starts out unhappy. In other words, if we weren't wounded in life, why would we be interested in any of this stuff? And for most people, that's, there are some people who just have a real spiritual yearning. It just comes easily and naturally. And the, the, the driving force is not suffering, but a real deep mystical search or spiritual search, however you get that. You know, I can't account for it. Family or just or karma, whatever. But most of us uh, are driven to trying to examine ourselves because we have to. We find out that it doesn't work for us in love or in work, the two main areas, we're casualties. And we find out about meditation and let's say we go to Insight Meditation Society and I'll be, you know, doing this, but it's a wonderful place which I love to teach at, but also it has some problems. So please don't think I'm trying to discredit it. I'm trying to give you my personal slant on it. And not everyone shares this view. It's only my view. So this person who's been wounded, let's say in love and in work, goes off to Insight Meditation Society or, any, or a Zen center and starts to meditate and starts feeling much better and starts to taste a certain amount of peace and perhaps temporarily, which can be a few weeks or a few months or in some cases a few years, no relationships with men or women. And even if, you, if the young ones leave the job market, or don't even try, they become, in other words, meditation junkies. Or really loving the whole meditative life and go from one retreat to the next. Not having relationships with men or women for a while. And starting to feel a growing amount of peace. And again, what is happening, the person is now starting to live as if they're a monk or a nun, even though they aren't. And then there's, there's a certain sanity that comes, there's a certain clarity, perhaps physical health improves. A lot of good things come out of it. In my observation, personally, I feel I've benefited. and I've, I've lived like that. I've done lots of long retreats. But at a certain point, there's a day of reckoning. Unless you are going to become a monk or a nun or a professional, in the sense that your whole life is spent in these specialized environments, in retreat centers, in monasteries, etc., you go out into the world. And it typically happens by a man or a woman falling in love with somebody on a retreat. Not too surprising. And all these spiritual wonders that have been accumulated for six months or two years or seven years, these are real people I'm thinking about, out the window overnight. Or at a certain point you realize, I have to pay the rent. I, it's time to leave this meditation center. And the people come back out. They've been wounded. Now, at the beginning, they've been very attracted to the exotic nature of many of these paths because they've been wounded in ordinary life. And by ordinary, I don't mean to slight it. I just mean what we do, what we call the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, 
washing, taking out the garbage, what constitutes much of our life for all of us, most of us. So they're particularly attracted to spiritual techniques that are exotic. Sit for 12 hours a day, don't do this, do that. It has a certain romance to it. Okay, I, I say this for a reason, you'll see in a moment. Now the time comes they have to go back into the world to earn a living and perhaps they have a relationship or they realize that they now want a relationship again. And they come out and very often are in worse shape than when they began, in one sense. It's a, a, a dislocation that can be quite dramatic, where the person feels, how can I earn a living? I mean, here's this dirty, noisy, loud world filled up with egomaniacs, all trying to elbow me out of the way, trying to accumulate and achieve, and I've been living in bliss and peace, thinking we are all one, and a lot of it is genuine, I'm not mocking that, and I've not been competitive, and I've become very sensitive to all kinds of harshness. And suddenly you're in a world that could care less about that you were in Japan or Korea, because it can happen there too, wherever you get it. And there's a major re-education that goes on. Now, from the point of view of what I was suggesting, it's because that form of meditation for a layperson, for people like ourselves, is fragmented. It doesn't embrace all of life. And it treats us as if we are monks and nuns, which would probably be okay if we were, but we aren't. And so then there's a period of tremendous pain and frustration as the person now tries to correct for that to now learn how to get a job, learn how to, to be with a man or a woman. And it's not easy for many people because of the extreme. Now, what I feel, to put it in a nutshell, is that the monastic approach, very often, at least the Oriental version, discredits the dignity of daily life by, in subtle ways, suggesting that it's, it's less worthy than sitting in meditation. In other words, this is where it's really at. That's spiritual. Not that they would say it, it's, it's implicit. And getting married, having a job, being in a relationship, it's nice if you have to do it, we'll suggest some ways in which you can get through it. Cope. You see, it's a very different attitude. And that is transmitted. Now, that isn't very helpful. If you, want to, if you have very deep spiritual aspirations and you also want to be in a relationship and have a job because you have a split and you're kind of a non-hospitalizable schizophrenic with spiritual things and then, and then ordinary things, mundane things. Okay, so a number of us who've been doing this teaching have come to the following orientation, which is that spirituality has everything to do with an approach and it's not limited to where you go. You won't find it necessarily in India or anywhere else for that matter. Which is not to say don't go to India because you can get certain kinds of training there that can be very helpful. So right from the beginning, the person is taught that life is a whole and that every moment is the perfect moment to practice a spiritual discipline. The spiritual discipline becomes life itself. The main discipline becomes the contacts that we have with each other is central. Relationship now, it, instead of being periphery, peripheral, and a derivative of your sitting meditation development. In other words, if you sit long enough, for example, one highly esteemed Burmese master came some years ago, and people would ask him, well, you know, typical relationship type problems, and you can imagine what they're like. And he would just, at the end of it, say, more sitting is called for. 
Okay, now, and some people decided, okay, and they went back to their cushion to solve their relationship problem, and others said, give me a break. <laughs> you know, in other words, the relationship has to sit on the cushion. You know, people have got to bring this meditative, if there is anything in meditation, it's got to be brought into that. And, you know, it's integral. It has to become integral to our spiritual work because we spend so much time doing it or wanting it when we don't have it. Okay, so can you see there's a whole different attitude? Um, we have a limited amount of time just, uh, just to, so you get a sense of how this is possible. A, a relationship can become a spiritual practice that has easily as much dignity and value as sitting still. Both are in the service of self-disclosure, of self-knowledge, of learning about ourselves. If you sit still, quietly, as we began to do, and if you do it for extended periods of time, in silence, let's say for a few days or months, obviously what's inside of you is going to start to pour out. And the job of meditation teachers is to help you learn how to work with that. It's to help you get to know yourself. But, and that's valuable, invaluable. I have found it extraordinarily valuable. That's why I do it. But every time we come in the presence of a person, don't we have a reaction? I like you, I don't like you, I'm bored, I'm enthralled, whatever. Now, if we could develop sensitivity and awareness, and that's why I suggest that we stay alert in our being with each other tonight, you can learn a tremendous amount about yourself. Because each relationship is mirroring back to you what you actually are, not any idealized notion. You may have an ideal as yourself as a generous person, and then somebody says, you got, you know, five bucks until payday and you feel, feel a tightening up, you know, and a tension. And then excuses come out. And you can, if, you're, if you want to, to really be free, you have to see every way in which you limit yourself, without exception. So then we now get a beautiful twist, and it's similar to Gandhi, turning around a very bad situation, a mass of unarmed civilians in India, and making that his strength. A bad situation is a good situation. You have a boss you hate, terrific. Because he's going to push all your buttons and you can learn a lot about yourself. You know, what happens when things don't go your way, when you're not respected, when you're exploited? And I'm not saying stay there. What your action is, is your business. But you can learn a lot about yourself and become freer, even to have a more creative action in that situation. If you see it as an opportunity for learning, a challenge for learning, rather than as an obstacle. So the whole trick, if you want to call it, it's not a trick, it's a a change of attitude is not seeing the challenges that come up in life as obstacles, but rather as as opportunities for self-disclosure. Because in relationships, there's powerful energy that's released and you can learn an enormous amount about yourself if you really want to. And that takes strength. Just as much strength in a different way as pacing there with the tigers. Because you're going to have to start seeing and hearing and some of your cherished images get fractured, fall apart. Until perhaps we come to realize that none of these images are who we really are. Okay. um, I think we could go on, but I I think it's enough for you to get a feeling of what's being suggested. Uh, We need a practice that right from the beginning sees everything that we do as homogeneous, all-inclusive, and of value in terms of our spiritual unfoldment, that nothing is thrown away, and that a bad situation is a good situation, 
And a good situation is a good situation. It can also be bad if it's so good that you get complacent. Do you see how all these twists come up? So that we don't have to feel that the only way to make spiritual progress is to become a monk or a nun, or even to go away for just endless periods of sitting meditation. The real issue is, is there a yearning to be free? Or a yearning to come to God? Whatever language is appropriate for you. And if there is, you can stay right where you are and live out your life and perhaps take advantage of some of these uh, contemplative situations. But now it will all be one giant yoga school, the whole planet, because you'll be making it into a school. It's already, the teachings are already there. The universe is tireless in teaching us all the time. Every time we violate a law, we get punished. And so the question is, are we there? Are there any students? And what is being asked, and maybe we should just end with this, is can we become disciples of our own understanding? Benefit from teachers, sure. But begin to learn how to take total and complete responsibility for ourselves. And that, to me, is the heart of meditation. It's learning how to stand on our own two feet, by ourselves. And at the beginning, it's helpful to have somebody who's trying to do it and perhaps has been trying a little longer. But the, the purpose is to help you free yourself. Because nobody, as far as I can tell, maybe I've missed it, but as far as I can tell, there is a certain amount of help, but nobody can free me from anything. In fact, one of the greatest aids that I got was from one of my teachers, and that was he helped me to understand that he had absolutely nothing to give me. And he was very happy when, when he saw that I understood that. It took me years. And he said, you know, I said, I understand. You mean there's nothing you can do for me? He said, I've been telling you that for years. And it's both, at first, can be terrifying and tremendously exhilarating. Okay. Do you want to just stand up and, I don't know, just relax? And maybe, uh, perhaps take a five-minute break. Maybe there's some bathroom action. And then we can, if there are any questions, we can spend some time on that. Those of you who are, you know, had enough, please go home and get a good night's rest. If you like, come to your breath for just a moment. You don't need a special posture, just settle down and so that we can talk and listen with each other. I'm going to do the same thing. Okay, does anyone have any questions or comments? Please. I wonder if you can speak up. I have, can you hear? You can hear. Okay, good. Um, I would say it's simplicity. There's no ceremonial stuff. There's no uh, chanting or bowing or there's nothing. The, the, the formal... The, the emphasis is on formal sitting. So 
So there's a lot of sitting, and within that, there's an, uh, even that, the instructions are remarkably simple. It's essentially what we've, it's to pay attention to the mind and body. Let's say when you're sitting, it's easier that way, of course, because you're not doing anything else, to just listen to the mind and body without any judgment, without um, condemning it. Um, and then when you get up from sitting, to bring that same awareness into every posture that you go through during the day. So it would be, it's very similar to Zen, to certain schools of Zen, which is a training in living wholeheartedly. It should be that. It often isn't because people get locked into the retreat motif. And therefore, when they leave the retreat, they become much sloppier, much, because that isn't sacred. And then when they go to, to a retreat at a meditation center, then there's the quality of attention goes up in a quantum leap. I, I didn't get to that, but that's, that, that happens. There's, so there's sacred places that you go to to do your practice. And when you go there, suddenly you become more alert and you straighten up and you eat very mindfully and etc. You become very humble. And then you leave there and it's out the window. And that's another, uh, another spin-off of this, this uh, approach. Now, if you, were never, if you were living in a monastery, you would never be challenged that way because you're living in, or not as much, you'd be living in, in the special surroundings a good deal of the time. But I would say it's the simplicity, uh, the simple direct perception of each moment, quality of each moment, seeing what's there and learning from that. Uh, around that is a lot of teachings and ideas and models of how things are, but you don't have to accept that. The, the prerequisite is a willingness to take a look at yourself. Uh, the mode is the uh, awareness. That is, um, the awareness is located between, uh, let's say, d- direct expression, let's say when you're sitting, and suppression. Let's say, um, anger comes up. I hope this is answering the question. Anger comes up. One common option would be you get angry and you start screaming at somebody or hitting them or just get lost in angry thoughts. The other option, we repress it. Oop, a good person is not supposed to be angry. Squeeze it down. Uh, the approach taken in insight meditation is the, the word, in a sense, is a giveaway. It's seeing into. It's penetrating into the phenomena of life. And so what we would do is we would allow the anger to be there. Just as if you were, let's say, a, a naturalist studying a plant life or studying a cloud formation, you allow the anger to be there and you bring total attention to it. In other words, you, you feel it. You listen to it. Now, what can be neglected by a tremendous emphasis on this is catharsis. That's not emphasized. And some people, in my experience, you see, as we go on, they just need it. Maybe the Oriental people didn't, but many of us have so much chaos that if you try to just have this very serene meditative approach, it's premature. And the person may have to do some kicking and screaming and yelling and uh, Feldenkrais and... and uh, what is that? Um, Ralphing, whatever it takes, until, and psychotherapy, until the person settles down so that the anger isn't so out of control that they can listen to it. Because many people that I work with 
are, you know, very intelligent and hear the, the instructions that say, can you just watch it? Can you just hear the anger? And they understand that, but they can't do it because it's got such a powerful charge. So very often, uh, lots of people that I work with are also in psychotherapy. And with the right therapist, that can be quite helpful. Or doing other things like yoga and tai chi and massage. I think it's all potentially very useful and can be, can be worked together. Yeah. With Ruth Tennyson, or sorry. And, um, she said some of the things that you said tonight, which is very interesting for me. Insofar as it seems that what both of you are saying are, you don't have to have the robes and do kneeling and cross legs, and it's sort of a, um, a pragmatic approach to, to bring it into uh, uh, everyday use. And um, I think that. This may be a, a, a transformation that's going on now in, in the United States and the world, and, and this is the method where things like meditation are going to have to uh, business. So someone who doesn't normally travel in, in uh, meditation circles, uh, and it's a very effective approach because it's, it's pragmatic. I can I can I can deal with that in my in my nine to five existence. Um, Could I stay with the first part? And then we can get to the second part. I think you've put your finger on something extremely important. Um, one way to look at it, and I'm not a, you know, a, a scholar in the sense of total history of religions and history of the world. I've done a little of that, particularly in the Buddhist tradition. But it seems to me that this perhaps overemphasis on uh, spiritual practice being carried out by special people with special clothes in special conditions has been a disaster. Because what it has done is that some of the most sincere, dedicated people have cut themselves off from life and have gone, gone into retreats and, you know, this is all insanity. I don't want any part of this. Himalayas or wherever. And as a result, uh, maybe what's desperately needed is what you're saying, my, my hearing you anyway, uh, to spiritualize daily life because the quality of life on the planet is perhaps at an all-time low. I don't know if it's an all-time low. It's low. We're, you know, we're, we're on the edge of destroying ourselves. And that's, of course, another thing that is pol- political action. It seems is absolutely essential for that split. Oh, I'm, in, I'm a political activist, therefore I don't meditate. Oh, I'm a meditator, I don't bother with political action. That's another false dichotomy, uh, which is now beginning to dissolve. There's something called the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And there's a particularly a Vietnamese Buddhist monk who's been leading the way in, and there's a teacher at, at Barry named Christopher Titmus who particularly developed along these lines of uh, bringing social action and contemplative life together so there's no split. So I think if it is feeling good for you, that's good. Now, one of my teachers uh, predicted the following, and I don't know, we can all watch, is that all the major religions are really exhausted and that it's over. It's just a matter of time. They've done their job. That is the world religions as they're presently set up. And that the symbols and rituals and ceremonies, etc., are no longer appropriate for the planet as the planet is. It's such a small planet. And that the religion of the future is 
self-understanding or self-knowledge. That is, each individual taking responsibility for those who want to do it. You see, because that, in a way, is the essence of religion, not what you wear or the building that you go or going every Sunday or Saturday. Um, it has to do with a, a quality of, of uh, being. And, uh, for example, you could worship something in a building, but what if it turned out that we started to worship each other? In other words, if, if real worship was that we understood that this universal energy was manifesting, or God was manifesting through each one of us, and that you don't have to pray to an icon because in really respecting your neighbor, your husband, your wife, you, that's a religious activity if you understand what it means. In other words, if you go deeper, because they're an expression of total truth. If you don't, you get locked into the level of personality. I like her or him, I don't, or you know, and then it's still you know a valid realm and has to be understood, but it can be deepened. What's the second part? Okay, I know those volumes. That's more of the occult expression of it, which I, I be careful with that. This is just my opinion. It can be a, a, a real uh, side trip. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but psychic phenomena have a place as well. However, wisdom, it, 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 psychic phenomena and wisdom are not the same thing. Here's a, a, a problem that we as, I feel, we, we Americans have. We can't tell the difference between power and wisdom. We're starting to. Power is, you know, telecommunity, all those psychic phenomena, mental telepathy, out-of-body uh, experiences. You tell me whatever you read in those books. Wisdom is much more unassuming. It's not as sexy in a way. It's not as commercially viable. It has to do with sanity. And we're much more interested in somebody reading someone's mind than being sane or, or genuinely humane. And in the Buddhist teachings, he... Um, at one point was asked, the Buddha supposedly had full psychic powers, but never, very rarely used them. And someone asked him why he didn't teach some of these psychic things to his disciples. And he said, if I got people interested in this, they get lost in all of it because it's so much more captivating and seemingly valuable. So and then they wouldn't get, a, they would, it would divert their attention from something that in one sense is much less romantic. It's the hard day-to-day -day work of learning how to be sane, you know, how to be wisdom, the science of, of, of uh, happiness, of how to live correctly and fully. And I've seen it many, many times. You know, people are much more interested in levitation. You know, it's easy to take an elevator. You know, but people are paying thousands of dollars to levitate. Now, I know that that can be tricky. You can develop some important mind qualities that can be useful for wisdom in those kinds of training but it, all too often people get lost in it as an end in itself. Read the books, see what they are. But eventually, my guess is, you won't have any real fulfillment in life unless you come back to yourself. It's going to begin and end with you. How are you doing? These things can feel, fill your imagination. People flying through the air, maybe it's true, walking over water, whatever they do. 
and it can make you feel, oh, I'm getting involved in a really exciting new realm. It will wear thin after a while, and you'll be, you'll come back t- to just you there in your underwear, and you know, sitting there, and you know, who am I? Just being, yeah. right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, have you got about ten hours? Mm-hmm. No, because I was uh, quite active in the achievement part, and, uh, having gone to the university quite a bit. Yeah. Um, one thing that it's hard for us to understand is that we think the only way we can have a lot of energy is through competition. And, and conflict, in other words, uh, friction. Unless there's something that we're trying to correct or compensate for or get ahead or how's he she doing and that there won't be enough energy to do anything worthwhile. We'll be siesta, just, you know, under the tree and, you know, just drinking. And we don't understand that there's tremendous energy that comes, it doesn't come out of, uh, ach- of achievement, striving, competition, or any of that. It comes out of love. And now, for example, take the Buddha as a very good, good example. The Buddha didn't work out of that energy. Let's hope he didn't. I mean, otherwise, you know, we're in big trouble. Um, and he got a movement going. I mean, he spent 80-odd years in, of his life walking on foot from one end of India back and forth and talking to anyone who would listen from all castes and got something going. It's still viable today, 2,500 years. That takes energy. So there was something, a powerful, if you want to call it a revelation, that came through him and was transmitted. And it's still going on. Where did that energy come from? In other words, it doesn't follow that if you don't strive and become goal-oriented, that you're going to become lazy. Okay, now, a practical hint. Okay, what if, let's play a game for the moment, and you're all welcome to play with me, but I don't, to me it's not a game anymore. What if it's true, as all these spiritual teachings promise, that... At our core, we're perfect. Each one of us is, is, a, is a Buddha, without exception. No matter what our body looks like, no matter what our mind seems to be like, how racy it is, or if we're depressed, those are all uh, uh, variations on the level of form. But at the core of our being, not only are we totally uh, perfect, we're joyful, we're at peace, and not only that, we're all the same. There are no men or women there, there's no upper class, lower class, black, white Russians and Americans, none of that. Okay, that's what they're saying. Certainly Buddhism is saying that. That the core, there is a, a luminescent core to each one of us. And that once you make contact with it, there's a sense of well-being which is independent of your circumstance. Words, whether you get a reward or you don't, whether someone says you're beautiful or gives you a pay increase or not, there's a sense of well-being. It's intrinsic to the human state. Now, what if we had faith that that might be true? Which perhaps we don't because we're so skeptical. But what if we did? Then, in a way, meditation would be just sitting down quietly and seeing this insane mind endlessly striving to get someplace even though it's already there. And so, you, do, you see, if you strive to not strive, it's still more striving. So that all you can do is bring... A, and a sense of humor is tremendously helpful at this point is to bring great care and attention to the striving mind. And notice how 
the mind is always wanting something more than it seems to have, how it's always wanting to get somewhere else. Uh, this person is not good enough, this house is not good enough, there's somewhere India is better, or that teacher is better, or some food is better. In other words, it's endlessly got new programs for self-enhancement. No sooner do we get them and they, you know, a little bit of time goes by, on to the next one. Now, so inquiry is very helpful. You start to see the cost that's being paid. I mean, tremendous psychic problems that people have if it's a life of always striving, physical ailments, unhappiness, and in the extreme war. I mean, war is an expression of us, of the fact of how unfulfilled and violent we are. And it's expressed in a small way on an interpersonal level and in a big way, it's called nations. So it's not that you can just turn a switch. I mean, I don't have a formula for you. But in my own case, I mean, I still have some, but the degree to which it's fallen away had a lot to do with, first of all, seeing the limitations of it. I I became disillusioned with conventional success. In other words, to me, success was nothing, necessarily. Do you know whether it's money, prestige, or whatever? It had to become really empty. That was very helpful. It was very depressing. Because I worked so hard to get these, what turned out to be illusions, and then it turned out I was just who I always was, just me, with a bunch of bubbles over my head, in other words, what I imagined myself to be. And then the other thing that helps, so the first part is seeing the limits of striving. And the other part is learning that, in a sense, that the, the best technique is not a technique, but just being with your own striving and seeing it, and it starts to get weaker. Now, it doesn't result in less energy or less decisiveness, but probably you have a fantasy somewhere that, my God, if I don't strive, I'll just be nothing. I'll be completely passive and indolent, and I'll be on the dole, you know, tomorrow. That's, I, and that's because we've been brought up that way. Okay. Um, you may need a spiritual practice that there are some spiritual practices that there's something for everyone in America. That's one of the great things about this country. And there are Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.